we'll start with a digest of everything making today's Sunday papers. Our panel in studio, Shona Murray, Europe correspondent for Euronews. Good morning to you, Shona. Morning. Ivana Batchik is a Labour Party senator and she's the Reed Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin. Good morning to you, Ivana. Morning, Gavin. And Stephen O'Leary is from Alitico, the online news and social media monitoring and analysis company. Good morning to you, Stephen. Morning, Gavin. Can we get one thing clear before we even get into the papers? Are we allowed to call this period Twixmas? This kind of idle fallow period between Christmas and New Year's where nobody really knows what day of the week it is. I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be on this morning. That's how all over the place no, I, I am. I actually would think that was yesterday I was thinking was I on like today because I couldn't yeah. remember what day it was. So now that I did yeah. this, no, being on here on a Sunday has now guided me for the week okay. ahead. I know that this is Sunday. We are all clear that today is Sunday though, yeah. right? Okay, right. Because that much is sure because I'm, I'm really concerned that we're going to have like, uh, you know, Sinead Ryan or Claire McKenna or someone else coming in and saying, actually, this is my time for the show. So we're completely all over the place place but I'm glad that we found the place in good stead and the, and the clock does say 11.02 so we are coming up to the, the right time of the week um, let's have a look at what's on the front pages of the papers this morning we'll start with the Sunday Times Leo predicts pay bonanza for public servants God it's almost as if there's an election in the offing isn't it the Taoiseach has predicted that the new public sector pay deal due next year will include salary rises above the rate of inflation in a news conference with political correspondents Leo Varadkar also said Fine Gael would promise in its general election manifesto that fewer people would pay the highest rate of income tax. He repeated his promise to help those who get up early in the morning. In related to the expected pay deal with public servants next year, Viratka anticipated that salary increases would outstrip inflation. I can see a rise faster than the cost of living, he said. That's what people generally want, for their pay to go up faster than the rate of inflation. Um, also on the front page, we learned that there is an urban-rural split on speed laws. Justine McCarthy tells us that the most recent Behaviour and Attitudes poll for the Sunday Times finds that 61% of people living in cities and towns are in favour of Shane Ross's proposals for a graduated penalty point system where the higher the, the amount of speeding that you are in effect the more penalty points you get but 51% of rural dwellers are against it and this of course mirrors the internal government disagreement where some people believe that it is an anti-rural measure uh, and also in the Sunday Times Simon Harris is to give uh, free contraception to Irish women starting with making the pill condoms and long acting reversible contraceptives or LARCs available to those aged 17 to 24 in a bid to reduce unwanted pregnancies. The Minister is expected to give bring plans to Cabinet next month to give free contraception to younger women initially with the option of expanding the scheme to older age groups after it becomes established. This is on foot of a recommendation from the Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment which recommended that universal access to free contraception should be introduced alongside the legalisation of abortion. Similar front page story as regards tax cuts and pay increases on the front of the Business Post this morning. Varadkar pledges tax cuts and pay increases for public sector workers. Uh, Michael Brennan uh, duly notes in his subtitle that the election battle is beginning as the Taoiseach says he will fulfil a promise to boost the take-home pay of middle-income workers. Leo Varadkar has promised pay rises for public sector workers, tax cuts and state pension increases in the run-up to the forthcoming general election. The Taoiseach says the increases for public sector workers should be faster than the cost of living and the commitments are, of course, likely to feature in Fine Gael's election manifesto which is still being drawn up. Um, also on the front page of the Business Post, the success of Irish whiskey could prove to be a double-edged sword for some of the country's newest distillers according to the serial entrepreneur and whiskey millionaire John Teeling. He says he's looked at the fundraising models for some of the newer distilleries and they're not all sound but he does reveal in the course of an interview with Barry J. White that he's already booked Oliver Callan the impressions and comedian to do a party sometime in the middle of 2021 which he predicts will be the time when Irish whiskey will outstrip the global consumption of Scotch whiskey. So mark that one in your diaries, 18 months time, a lovely patriotic moment for all concerned. Uh, And also on the front page of the Business Post, uh, Peter Bellew's correspondence during his contract negotiations with the airline EasyJet was found to have been not only misleading, but also untrue. 
by the High Court earlier this week. This, of course, is the fallout from the case taken by Ryanair against Peter Bellew, trying to foil him from moving to EasyJet and taking up a new role in what they consider to be a competitor airline. As we know, Peter Bellew will now be allowed to join EasyJet, but Judge Senan Annan of the High Court did found that in the course of correspondence with EasyJet, when he was asked if there was any restrictive covenants in his contract, in response, Bellew sent over a copy of an earlier employment contract which did not have a non-compete clause contained within it. Front page of the Sunday Independent. There's also more about Leo Varadkar saying that he'll hike taxes, uh, hike pension, not hike taxes, God, that is the last thing Leo Varadkar would want to do. He will hike pensions uh, and cut taxes. But the front page story there, new law to ban sale of petrol and diesel cars. Uh, Philip Ryan tells us that radical laws to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030 are being drafted by the government, the Sunday Independent can reveal. Climate Action Minister Richard Bruton has instructed officials to prepare legislation enforcing the ban with a view to publishing the new laws early in the new year. The minister plans to include the landmark legislation in the soon-to-be-published Climate Action Amendment Bill 2019. Legislation banning the sale of petrol and diesel cars by the end of the next decade will be drafted in conjunction with other departments before being brought to Cabinet. The government had originally set a target of trying to introduce these new laws by the end of 2020, but Richard Bruton is now fast-tracking the process as the general election approaches. And finally for now, the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. I stand by our housing record. Leo Varadkar says that far from being ashamed of his Fine Gael co- uh, government's record on housing, he is encouraged by the progress it has made. Mr Varadkar, who is becoming increasingly frustrated over attacks on the government's housing policy, has attempted instead to spread the blame to Fianna Fáil, the Green Party and Labour. He argues that while Fine Gael has held that the housing has been in power for nine successive years, it has only held the housing brief for three and a half years of that period, as John Lee notes on the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. That is not true, because before Alan Kelly, there was, of course, Phil Hogan, who held that brief for about three and a half years. Uh, that is our tour of the front pages of this morning's papers. As I said, Shona Murray, Ivana Bacic and Stephen O'Leary are, are with me in studio. Um, guys, it's very difficult not to start with uh, the blanket coverage of Leo Varadkar's comments on public pay deals and tax cuts. Um, I'll start with yourself, Shona. It's very difficult not to get the whiff of a general election of all this talk yeah, of tax I mean, cuts, isn't it? It's sort of bread and butter stuff, isn't it? That uh, people are going to pay less tax. The average, uh, the squeeze middle uh, earners are going to have more money in their pockets and pensions are going to be increased. So it's the type of thing that you would expect to hear from a, a government about to going into a general election. There's no huge detail in it other than promising uh, something that people really want to hear um, not in relation to whether or not you know, the country can afford it or whether it's the it's the right mm. um, well, policy well, That is the funny thing isn't that there isn't very much discussion and it is buried down in, in far later paragraphs of the whole prospect of whether the country can afford it and Leo Varadkar does at least add the provision somewhere in one of the stories that he isn't going to fund tax cuts with borrowing but yeah, that there, is, he, there is still a kind of a great unstated as to whether we can afford any of these yeah, things. Yeah, he also made the point that he doesn't want to just continue to engage in sort of uh, rise in salaries for public sector workers like Fianna Fáil did in the past and did so for the sake of industrial peace without knowing that it's actually sustainable. So I think he's trying to, he, in, in pretty much all of the interviews, he talks about sustainability, uh, but saying at the same time coming into 2020, it's about time the public sector workers were able to have an increase in line with inflation and that that would be fair mm. enough but uh, sustainability is something that he's trying to uh, sort of message but there is no clear uh, insight as to whether or not it is sustainable because of course you know there are concerns over the next five to ten years about stability global stability but also stability as a result mm. of Brexit. Uh, Ivana Patrick when he talks about pay increases for public <coughs> service it's a point that Shona has touched on there um, have the previous public sector pay deals not provided for increases in public pay beyond the, the increase in the cost of living? 
Well, there's certainly been some increases there, but I think uh, the truth is, as you said, that uh, there's a lot more caveats and mm. uh, equivocation in the actual content of the articles. I'm sure Leo Radker will be delighted with the headlines across uh, mm. so many papers about pay bonanza, uh, pay tax bonanza, cuts, pay tax increases, cuts, pension hikes. Yeah. Uh, but in fact, when you read the actual substance of what was said in this mm. pre-Christmas press conference that is being written up now, uh, you know, you'll see that there are all these, all these. Uh, I suppose conditional conditionalities that he's mm. putting on it, and indeed, as Shona has said, he's he's you know he's he's fairly upfront that he wouldn't uh, he he wouldn't uh, give tax cuts if he can't run a budget surplus. That mm. he would choose if it was if it was a choice between a surplus and tax cuts, he would certainly choose a surplus. That's a really relief to hear because you know it, it, this is sort of pre-election nonsense, does really, it not of the sort that led us into boom and bust cycles. And yet he's saying he doesn't want to return does it not to boom and bust cycles. Go against what he's done for the last couple of years as well, because uh, there've been pretty modest cuts to the universal social charge and maybe tweaks in the income tax bans. But for the last couple of years, despite all the promises, we have been running minor deficits as well so that has all been funded whenever the government has been cutting taxes it has been done with borrowed money hasn't it? Well you see this is it I think it's I, I think it's very much uh, um as I say, hedged, and you know when he says uh, pay bonanza and so on. Really, you look at the last budget in particular, and Pascal Dunne, who was very, very cautious and rightly mm. so in the lead up to Brexit, and people, you know, and I think generally that received uh, acceptance from people that there was this wasn't a time to be giving big giveaways in mm. any budget when we didn't know what was going to happen. But now, look, when we don't know what trading relationship we're going to have, still, now is the time we're to do it. We're still Far facing into uncertainty. So I, th- I think what I think most people read those headlines with uh, and take them with a large pinch of salt. You know, uh, the other thing to say. Of course, is that um, he, and again, it's buried in the text that there will be pay talks uh, with the unions and public sector unions in, in May. One would expect that to happen as part of the next cycle of industrial, uh, of national industrial relations strategy. But of course, uh, everyone knows there will be an election certainly by May, and uh, or as everyone assumes there will be an election by May, and therefore it may not be Leo Varadkar. It may be a very different makeup of government that's mm. doing those negotiations. And the other thing to say, of course, is that uh, again in the text you'll see that there are uh, private sector pay increases predicted generally for 2020 which is great, which is very positive a mm. sign of a, a strong economy and a booming economy I think in the region about 4% pay increase for the private sector so I think again there's a big context for these pieces that's not reflected in these giveaway headlines mm. the headlines are again I, I find them distasteful I think many people will because they do hint at that awful old Charlie Hawhey style of mm. electioneering and I and I would hope that we're, we're better than that and I think what people really want to see is investment in public services real investment in housing which is the big failure of this government, of course, is to uh, provide any sort of adequate housing investment mm. and housing stock for the 10,000 uh, homeless, uh, you know, for the more than 3,000 children uh, uh, who don't have homes this Christmas. So I think that's really what people are looking for, investment in health, investment in housing, investment in public mm. services. And that should come ahead of any sort well, of talk about tax cuts. Well, on that point, Stephen, it's also, it'd be interesting to see what the other parties, particularly Fianna Fáil, outline in terms of a tax policy when, with one eye on the next election. But it is interesting that at a time when Leo Varadkar acknowledges that so much more needs to be done on the likes of housing and health and when he has such an ambitious capital plan when he wants to you know he's already talking about 2040 and all the money that has to be sunk into major infrastructure projects that he does also seem to want to be able to do that with far less money at his disposal because he wants the public to keep so much more of it. Yeah it's age old though I mean we're coming up to an election and is housing and health essentially going to get votes I mean we're unhappy with it Mm. you know regardless and, and every time we see the headlines you know there's outcry but also Ultimately, it's so difficult for any political party to offer a promise of fixing either of those two things because so many things have been tried and so many things have failed. Mm. In some ways, taxes 
are such an easy thing mm. to point to and say, here's something tangible that you will see in your pocket mm. as a difference. And that essentially is a, but is a vote getter. Do, do you think that, that we might be at a point, though, where even giving money back to people or taking less of their money in the first place might come secondary to the government being able to do something? So, for, say, for example, if your biggest concern is housing and the cost of rent living in a big urban area like Dublin or one of the other major cities, uh, the amount of money that you might get back in a tax cut might be diddly squat compared to the amount of extra rent you might be facing in the next couple of years. And one could argue that maybe you would be better off paying slightly higher taxes and allowing the government to actually build and try and address the imbalance there. Well, that presumes a holistic view of the mm. situation and it also presumes a, a long-term view. We know... Do you think people are a bit more self-centred than that? I, I don't think it's self-centred, but I do think there is a short-term element to this. If anything, you know, we look back at the decade and we were talking about it. If anything, we have learned in the last decade about how political decisions are made. Short-term thinking is really yeah, important. Yeah, I mean, it kind of assumes that, that people would have faith that any government, even if they were given, um, you know, the green light for extra taxes by the electorate to fix health and housing, then why what fate do the, any of those people have that government can actually manage mm. um, the health system? Because clearly for throwing money at it hasn't it, helped up to well, now. Well, it hasn't. But look at what Stephen <coughs> was saying. It's all short term because if you have the change of government or change of policy every four years or every five years, then mm. uh, as we've seen with the HSE, with the health system, um, no impact is ever made. And also governments aren't probably willing to make the um, investment in long term investment because they may not reap the rewards, mm. you know, when they do, if they ever do materialise 10 or 12 years later. And actually, it's interesting because on the Sunday Times, you see, you know, know that front page also gives a line to uh, Simon Harris who's going to uh, give uh, free contraception mm. for women between 17 and 24 which is a drop in the ocean you know it's it's definitely a very important thing of course in terms yeah. of um, what's required to prevent women from from having abortions mm. etc. But again it's, it's more money that the state wants exactly. to get by without. Yeah, but at a time when the health service also um, is in, I mean, the government has made mm. such terrible mistakes, fundamental mistakes mm. uh, with, the, with the children's hospital and maternity hospital. We will come back to the whole question of the uh, the contraception and whether it is the right use of state money, perhaps later in the show. But in the meantime, Shona, just to go back on a point that you raised um, in your first comment, which is the ambiguity around Brexit. And we had met, and Ivana had mentioned that the current budget, the one that's just gone, was very much a whole steady budget because we were all in a circling pattern waiting to see exactly what would happen for Brexit. In some ways now, we know even less about what could be happening, you know, 12 months down the line. Although there may not be a hard border on this island, but we could have a massively disrupted trading relationship mm. with mainland Britain just across the sea. And surely one would think that maybe in hindsight, this would be the year to give people back money because next year is the one where we really don't know what's going to be going on. Well, I don't know about giving people money. I mean, again, that's just dropping the ocean when you consider... <laughs> the like fundamental changes that could take place between um, the Ireland and the UK and the UK's relationship with Europe. If Boris Johnson is serious, which he appears to be so, but we also, you know, when he said he's going to um, sign off on legislation to ensure that there will be no extension to the transition period by the end of 2020, which I know was uh, just a bit of a ploy, really. But if he's serious about just wanting an off-the-shelf trade policy, which is going to be very much bare bones, then um, areas like agriculture are in huge trouble. Um, just generally speaking, Speaking, the trade relationship between the UK and the EU and Ireland's relationship, therefore, with the UK is going to be terribly problematic mm. because obviously the UK is such a huge, important market for us. But then just the general disruption that that will cause uh, globally as well, um, like it, it's I think it's even 
much we're actually in much more threatening waters um, mm. going into next year and there's no way Great. that anybody <laughs> can say well I think so because um, they may leave by the 31st of January you know in all but yeah. name I guess because they'll still be in yeah. the single market and the customs and then union we've, we've 11 months to do, do then Not a trade 11 deal months because well they've effectively well, they got, 5 months don't they yeah exactly yeah. I mean it, that'll be really they'll sit down at the end of February at the end of June whether they want to invoke an extension yeah. or not well the, July, is, July is the deadline for yeah. an extension but before that they have to sit down and have their negotiation guidelines so the UK has to decide what type of relationship it wants that has to happen hasn't begun yet they oh haven't, good they don't even because I've the, missed Britain tearing its apart over, over the future they don't have anything like that as we know because you know Boris Johnson will want as much access to the single market of the customs union as possible mm. um, and the EU will obviously make sure that its red lines are in place so you'll have I mean I mean, like Boris Johnson has already told people like the fishing industry for example you're going to have all your fishing uh, waters back again it won't because mm. the EU is going to play hardball on that this is just one area by the way we're not talking about <laughs> Great. passporting Just rights, in, in case you thought next rights. year's on the records <laughs> will be slightly the, more Brexit any free. Any of those things. But they have the negotiating guidelines have to be set by February and it has to be done by October because all the EU parliaments have to um, sign off on it. And we remember what happened with the with the Wallonians yeah. under the Canadian uh, uh, trade agreement. Yes, that one of the if regional parliaments in Belgium held up the whole thing. extension on the talks, mm. then that's, you know, that then he has to have it done by October. And it's just, it's cool. so threatening Well, for then us whoever, all. whoever the new Minister for Finance is, then we'll have a great time drawing up the budget next October if they don't know what sort of trading relationship or off a cliff we're going to fall well, off. Well, it could um, be, it's the it's cliff edge stuff is back around again because if there's no, if they if they decide to walk away from the trade talks, then there is no trade agreement yeah. and then they are out of the single market and the customs. I don't know if that's actually necessarily going to But this is happen. where all the qualifiers that Ivana was talking about earlier come into mm-hmm. play. Yeah. That's where all the ifs, buts and maybes. So, like you said, so the, head, Varadkar, the headlines are what grabs our yeah. attention. So, if Varadkar runs on a platform, I will cut your taxes and then if he says oh but if we can't afford it we're just not going to do it which yeah. is you like see, a platform the head, yeah. headline electioneering worked for Boris and I suspect I don't mean I, I think I, most people would suspect mm. looking at those headlines that that's what Leo Varadkar is currently doing he's looking at what won Boris that huge majority in the December 12th election in Britain and he's saying I'm going to electioneer in slogans and headlines and never mind the caveats and the qualifiers mm. and, and the uncertainty I mean shown as outlined well, the hideous uncertainties lying ahead for Brexit over the 12 months ahead mm. uh, for mm. the incoming commissioner Ursula van der Leyen in the EU has already expressed doubts over Christmas that that, that those that, that time frame is in any way feasible to conduct okay. the sort of trade I'm glad you added that qualifier because I thought can. you were about to say that she was expressing doubts over Christmas and we no. would have thought that Christmas you know <laughs> quite firmly exists given that we've established we're not sure what day of the week it is that sounds like um, a Boris headline in itself EU yeah, casts doubts cast, over Christmas cast doubts over Christmas no um, but I think I think that you know the deadlines are extraordinary when you look at it you know that by the end of June they have to have effectively decided the full shape of the negotiation because otherwise they can't ask beyond the 1st of July for the two year extension mm. that's possible that anyone would think well that would be sensible to go for a further extension and also the but thing ruled that out. the feeling was in, in the aftermath the immediate like moments after it was clear that the Tories would have a significant win in the election I was in Brussels and you know all of the sources said this is great now he has a decisive win and he will then you know return to the Boris the liberal uh, progressive globalist mm. Boris Johnson that mm. we knew uh, during the time of the this Olympics the faint hope yes the London Olympics and therefore he has it's, it's going to be a very faint hope isn't it because why, why, would one moder- why would one moderate their position now that they've just been given a majority because for running on that because, position because typically in, in honestly and in their firm belief is typically Boris Johnson is by his nature a liberal a progressive a globalist he's from you know he's born in New York he's got Turkish uh, you know ancestry his father was an MEP he was a Remainer you know he mm. is pro-European he sold his Telegraph stories because you know um, you know he, he, he saw that lives gained in popularity but he doesn't 
he is himself, as we know, slightly pro-European. He didn't know whether he was going to vote Remain or Brexit in the first place. So the assumption was that Boris Johnson now he doesn't have to tur- turn to Rhys Mogg or Andrew Bridgen or the ERG, the DUP, and he would therefore sign off on a progressive trade deal that had integrated support um, and integration with the single market of the customs union. But it appears the opposite is going to happen and that he has sort of decided to drive from, uh, the UK away from the um, the EU mm. and more towards um, Donald Trump. Uh, a few texts and tweets. Philip says that don't forget that the uh, the revenue commissioners was going to cut a whole range of allowances uh, for many workers in the public and private sectors, but then it was pulled a couple of weeks ago, presumably with one eye on a general election. He says Leo will give in one hand with a pay rise, but he'll take with the other by removing some of those allowances. Senate points out that, uh, sorry, have there been tax cuts that I've missed? Ireland's current top marginal income tax rate exceeds the top rate, which was advocated by Jeremy Corbyn uh, in the most recent UK election. And uh, Pat Manning points out that the 2016 election of removing or election mantra rather of removing the USC that was the mantra of all the major parties but it didn't fly with the electorate because actually sorting out the health system was the main issue on the doors uh, which might be an inopportune time to point out that Jim Daly has done an interview today with the Sunday Independent where he points out that no politician can ever fix the health service Mm. which is good to know at least that there's no point electing anyone to do it (laughs) because no one can manage it anyway Um, speaking on the general topic of loosening uh, budgetary purse strings and perhaps uh, splurging cash uh, we are also told on page 6 of the Sunday Independent that Irish art prices have exceeded the dizzying highs of the Celtic Tiger era. One Dublin art house says Stephen that it sold 9.5 million euro of art this year which is more than in any year including 2007. There's a touch of the boom getting boomier here isn't there? There is yeah um, and I suppose if you were looking to sell Irish art in 2019 it was a good year for you and, and one of the interesting things I think about the art market is that it... Unless you're RTE who of course weren't able to do it. Yes yeah. well again I suppose the actual size and scale of some of those pieces of art I mean that you could go off on a real tangent on that some of those were built essentially to be in a very specific place in a yeah. very specific building they're not going to hang in a regular house uh, like some of the, the other pieces that have sold I think the piece that stood out for me uh, in this piece in The Independent was the portrait of Garrick Brown um, mm. the head of a boy and we've seen more and more coverage of Garrick Brown um, because of the documentary that was published a little earlier this year um, and the the line I think in, in the piece is really is really worth kind of quoting it's there's no question that Freud's most arresting images are born from his closest relationships and this painting of Garrick Brown Im- immortalises one of Ireland's greatest cultural patrons um, of a bygone era okay. and it, it is really interesting I think That was from the auctioneer's uh, promo material it? Yeah well it's a direct quote um, from Sotheby's but it came after oh, it was, the sale sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, sorry I was being glib I didn't realise that it was no, an actual it, it quote genuinely was and this followed its sale I mean I mean, the piece of art itself uh, the, the piece is well worth reading there's an interesting kind of mix of the, the various things that sold during the year um, but the coverage that Garrick Brown has gotten in the last kind of three to six months because of the documentary that aired mm about Lugala and the history there um, and essentially his importance um, as an individual to Irish culture I think if you look back on 2019 I think the the coverage of that story is going to be one that um, will really sort of um, stand the test of time and something that we will look back on and say you know here's an individual that long before mm. um, we had kind of maybe arts departments and other and other places that were investing heavily here was an individual who actually recorded um, and kept through Clatter Records and other organisations um, you know a really good history of Irish culture and I think it's really nice to see um, this piece of art doing so well uh, in the auctions but the wider piece itself mm. um, certainly will give anyone who holds Irish art confidence 
going into 2020. Mm. And it is not just restricted to the arts industry. Mm. Well, Gen- it's not, because if anyone who saw the footage of uh, people queuing up outside Brown Thomas at nine o'clock on Stephen's morning would test it, there's quite a lot of people who are still absolutely prepared uh, to flash the cash. Ivana, how do you think about, or how do you feel when you see footage of people who have been queuing often since <laughs> the early hours of the morning trying to get into Stephen's Day sales at six or at eight or at nine in the morning? And you think, is, is that a sign of, of a healthy consumer market or is that a sign that we're all about to go lemmings over a financial cliff again? Um, well, I suppose the, those pictures are always with us. It seems to be a perennial every Christmas, whatever the state of the economy. So I think, I don't, I'm not sure they tell us so much, but certainly that piece about Irish art prices is an interesting one because art prices, I think, are often seen as a barometer for mm. how the state of the economy. And again, looking back at the past decade, when we look back to the early years of the tens, if we're calling them that. Yeah, we uh, have to. We, it we, isn't the sign of to. the division of the decade that we can't figure out even well, what I to think call this, this is a problem decade. with this yeah. decade, you know. But of course, 10 years ago, we were uh, in the in the throes of a terrible recession. We'd re- extremely high unemployment. Um, anyone queuing outside sales and early on a Stephen's Day morning would have been desperate for the bargains because they mm. couldn't afford the full price. I think a very different sort of mm-hmm. context now for queuing for the sales. I can't understand it myself, I have to say. But, Nor I, but uh, certainly, mm. um, certainly the uh, reports in the papers, not just about Irish art prices, but about retail sector, um, the state of the retail sector generally very positive in the papers about how good the uh, economy is. But I think, um, but I think you know that also has to be read beside the pieces like the interview with Jim Daly that you referenced, where there's this sort of fatalism or pessimism that politicians can't fix anything. And you know, I was dismayed to read that. I thought Jim Daly is retiring from politics. Uh, you know, he's uh, he some interesting things to say about mm. the way we organise our politics, how difficult it is for somebody from West Cork with a young family to uh, to to, yeah, to also work as a public representative. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, and certainly, you know, it's one of the reasons we so few women in Irish politics. Mm-hmm. We need to look at that, at how we can balance uh, uh, political responsibility with family life and so on. But I'm, what I'm dismayed about is what he says, you know, about, oh, well, politicians can't, uh, you know, the Minister for Health can't fix the health service. Well, actually, political well, decisions do have impact. For it somewhere, don't political they? decisions do have impact. I mean, again, the recession was at least uh, very largely made by political mm. decisions by an outgoing, by the previous Fianna Fáil governments. We talked about the Charlie McGreevy, Charlie Hawhey sort mm. of um, giveaway budget, budget culture that prevailed in Irish politics that was one of the big things that led to the uh, the recession the, that, that very um, artificial boom and then recession that we saw at the start of the last at the start of this decade uh, we've seen just even in since this government took office in 2016 political decisions have led to a, a huge increase in construction around hotels around student residences in inner city Dublin mm. in south inner city uh, around Dublin 8 where I live enormous amount of hotels and student accommodation we built but no still no housing so that's political decision making that's prioritising what we're giving uh, what we're incentivising people to build and I think you know that's where we need to be clear in the come up running up run up to any uh, election Stephen briefly is and then we'll that we, the, you know you vote for politicians who stand for particular priorities in terms of spending and in terms of what they're doing in budgets and clearly this government is not prioritising the building of housing and that's a huge thing uh, yeah no I agree that they're not prioritising it but there is also a ver- like I, I think it's really important to state that the economics of this play a huge role as well in terms of just how commercially viable it is to build hotels and student accommodation versus individual housing. Mm. Like there is, there are fundamental problems with how housing supply is provided. Sure, but let's incentivise it then, you see. So I mean, you know, for Labour, we have a big plan to invest in public housing building, to actually put state money into that and prioritise.
monetize it. But clearly, if you're giving incentives to build, to, you know, if you're making mm. it more profitable, if you build own a hotels, plot of land, bluntly, you can either build an apartment block or some student housing or a hotel. You're obviously going to go for the one which is the more lucrative. And the way things are set up, it's and, not going to be an apartment block. I take Stephen's point. Yeah, if you look at capacity levels of hotels and student accommodation in Dublin, it's not a case that this should be an either or. We don't have enough hotels. We don't have enough student accommodation. So both of those are things. Like the positive in this is that those their building is happening. If we were at absolute stagnation and nothing was being built that would be rock mm. bottom well that I, would be much worse I agree with you and of course in, you know, inevitably there's quicker quick, easier profits to be made from higher capacity building like student accommodation or hotels but in that case you need the state to incentivise the building of housing as well as not either and I agree with you Stephen not either or Van I want to come to you about a story we mentioned in our paper run uh, on the front page of this morning Sunday Times this news that Simon Harris is going to introduce free contraception to Irish women including the contraceptive pill starting uh, possibly sometime next year with those between aged between um, 17 and 24. Some would argue that this is only the right thing to do. It was a recommendation of the Oireachtas Committee which was looking at the future of the Eighth Amendment. Um, others including uh, your Trinity College uh, colleague and your former Shannon colleague uh, Sean Barrett is quoted inside the piece saying that it might not be the wisest use of public money. Where do you stand on this? Oh, I, I support this. And in fact, uh, I think it's a pity Sean Barrett is, is critical of it because, in fact, it's a good example, I think, of how politics can work well. This mm-hmm. was a recommendation from the Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment, chaired by my Shannon colleague, Catherine Noon, mm-hmm. who uh, and uh, but it was a, a recommendation, univer- you know, that was unanimous from all the committee. And I remember speaking with our our representative of the committee, Jan O'Sullivan, and uh, who was very positive about it. And it's part of a, it was part of an overall programme of measures that the Committee on the Eighth Amendment recommended mm. unanimously yes, to reduce s- the Some people saw them as a bit of an afterthought but they were still findings alongside well, the proposals th- around yeah, the Eighth itself. Yeah, I, th- I think all the members of the Committee made sure to emphasise them every, t- every chance they had because the whole point of the recommendations was to reduce the incidence of crisis pregnancy to ensure that women wouldn't need abortions as, you know, we would try and reduce the rate of abortion by reducing the incidence of crisis pregnancy. So it's, it's a long-term programme for uh, improving women's reproductive health and rights and I'm hugely supportive of it. I'm glad to see it's coming in. I see that uh, uh, because you know uh, the minister then uh, put up a work, put together a working group to look at how to implement it. And they said one of the ways you can do it is to phase it in. And that if you're phasing it in, that the first group you should be offering free contraception to is younger women, mm. aged 17 to 24. So you know this is, a, I think, a sensible, mm. uh, planned, phased in- implementation of a good so, recommendation, which indeed is already in place in other countries, including Britain, free contraception. Well, what, Unfortunately. Sorry, Kevin, we were talking earlier about the difference between headlines and substance. Unfortunately, the headlines, Harris to give women free pills, is somewhat, <laughs> somewhat sensational. It could be taken up in some other so ways. So again, indeed. it doesn't quite reflect uh, the, the seriousness of this proposal and the very sensible measure. The, what about Sean Barrett's point, though? He describes this as a, a windfall gain of 100 million euro to those who already purchase contraception. Well, I, I, th- I think, again, that's... This is hardly a, a priority populist. for a health service which th- finds budgeting beyond it on current capital Actually, it is accounts. a priority for health service to improve women's reproductive health, to ensure that people, women and men, are take responsibility for uh, for their he- for health. And I think that it's sensible to say that the group which are going to find it most difficult to afford contraception, i.e. younger people, mm. should, should have access first to free contraception. As I say, it's not actually a revolutionary scheme or a very radical one, but it's a sensible one. And I think that if one looks at the context, one looks 
looks at the and reads the recommendations of the Oireachtas Committee on the Eighth Amendment, one will see how this fits in with a much broader plan, mm. which in fact will save the state money if one was being totally uh, mercenary about it. This is actually a way of saving the state money by reducing incidence of crisis pregnancy and ensuring better sexual and reproductive health. So it's something I'm really supportive of. I think any group involved in working in the sector like the Irish Family Planning Association was hugely supportive and indeed promoted this to the Oireachtas Committee and to the working group. So I'm glad to see it's coming in and I hope we'll see it rolled out. I Sharon? think it's just going to, yeah, it's a phase in for uh, women of ages 18 to 24, which is the ones that are, you know, obviously students often and are less likely to afford um, access to um, abortion, or sorry, to contraception. Mm. Um, I think Sean Bart was making the point that I suppose that's an ideological one, it's about universality. Yeah, there are people who can afford it, but um, maybe it's just better that everybody has access to it. And then that way you go about preventing uh, the requirement for women to have terminations, which is was part of the discussion throughout the whole, you know, yes. Eighth Amendment, um, you know, the, the referendum and also the, the Rockets Committee was, you know, OK, many people, obviously, you know, if you're going to allow access to abortion in this country, then at least minimise it where possible mm. uh, so that, we, you know, the fewer women, the, the better that are, they're going to do it. And part of it is, you know, education. And alongside that, then is free access to contraception. Yeah. But I suppose the other thing is that if it's a huge a burden on the state, then I wonder, you know, will this, will it get to the point where it's going to be universal for every every woman or not? Mm. But at least starting off with those who are much in need. But the only thing is, I would say as well, is that there are, uh, you know, poorer women, and part of the problem was, you know, women who were middle age having abortions and having um, too many children was that they didn't have access to mm. contraception. Well, so this well, at least deals with their problems. people who were travelling at a time when you had to travel to the UK for an abortion, over half of those who were travelling did already have kids. They already had families. So it wasn't always necessarily those who were of younger age cohorts who simply couldn't afford a pregnancy. And then the other thing of that, Gavin, is they're the women who could afford to travel to the UK. It was all, always the poorer women who could never afford to go to the UK and also had uh, problems at home, um, domestic violence violent situations, controlling partners and didn't have the money to, to have an abortion. So it meant that it was, again, an unequal situation, even though women were allowed to travel. Poor women were the ones who had to suffer. And that really came to the fore when we saw the figures on importation of mm. uh, abortion mm. pills. Um, that so, so many women who couldn't afford to travel were importing pills at, at huge risk to themselves, risk of being criminalised. Uh, changing topic completely for a moment, Stephen, you're a man who uh, whose professional life revolves around trying to monitor sentiment online. I can't imagine that you've seen too many political tweets but met with almost the near universally dismal sentiment that Shane Ross's Christmas tweet of uh, who has been cooking my goose is it the vintners is it the judges is it the FAI considering the financial precariousness of the FAI and some of the jobs that are on the line there you'd be surprised we see an awful lot of tweets that are met with universal disapproval in fact um, uh, but this is a, a really a good example it's probably the wrong way to describe it but it's mm. a, a near perfect a example. example it is yeah. yeah and I think the thing that, that irritates or annoys me is obviously uh, the minister has a platform today in the independent interview with uh, with Philip Ryan mm. to to address it, um, and he gives and we talked about this earlier one of those fake apologies uh, where he says he's sorry if anybody took offence uh, with his comments. But the really good example are, are the the most clear statement that he has no regrets over this piece of content is the fact that he hasn't deleted the mm. tweet. But is it interesting that he has posted this or made this clarification rather not as an addendum to his original tweet and he's left the original one up there but that he has chosen to go to his preferred platform of the Sunday Independent to clarify it because it means that then he's apologising to a different audience but than he, the one to whom he offended in the first place. But the point here is he's not apologising. He, he, what he said is he's sorry if people took offence to this. This is a classic non-apology. We hear this all the time. It has to be called out. This is not an apology for the, for the tweet he made. And, and if he was sorry, mm. 
You delete the original content. That's what you do. You have the opportunity. He can't say, oh, well, it was published in a paper and now I can't take it off. He's the publisher here. And this is the age old issue. And I think when we look back on the decade, Mm. one of the fundamental changes that has occurred in terms of political discourse and in terms of broadcasting full stop is that it is transferring from traditional to social. And the idea that that individuals no longer have control over what they say or the platform they use that's no longer the case. If you tweet, if you post on Facebook, if you put something up on a social network and you later regret that decision, you can remove the mm. content. So he evidently doesn't regret it. He's kind of disqualified apology not. and it, doesn't actually regret it. And again, it's important. This is not an apology, not even qualified. He is saying that he is sorry if individuals took offence with what but he said. But it's also the fact, and you mentioned that there, Stephen, you said, you know, we have to like sort of call this out. He's not apologising. Um, we're also talking about it here on radio. He's tweeted it. It's in, it's in the papers. He's getting all the attention that he wants. But it's also that, you know, it's acceptable to offend people, say, oh, I'm sorry for the people who are offended and to, for him not to be criticised for that. that the standards are falling so low in terms of just being allowed to offend people uh, whenever you like and nobody to actually, you know, take any responsibility for that. And I mean, we see that all the time with people like Donald Trump who's tweeting like horrific things about an autistic 16 year old girl Greta Thunberg um, criticising her bullying her the mm. President of the United States and as he does so to many other people whether it's Elizabeth Warren or uh, you know various people he was targeting I mean and, and so how far does that go then you know that you know these sort of vicious uh, vitriolic attacks on people can just take place and that's the kind of like sort of course uh, discourse that we have now because of things like Twitter I'm not, say, not saying that Twitter is bad I enjoy it myself but that there is so much coarsening in the disc- in discourse that we have now that nobody takes responsibility for offending people and then offence is just something you just have to live with Yeah. Uh, by the by uh, Jerry Doyle or Gary Doyle rather has done a very big piece in the Sunday Business Post sorry I keep calling it the Sunday Business Post purely out of reflexive habit I apologise to everybody at the Business Post for, for wrongly christening you but he's done a piece uh, with 20 tips for the sporting year 2020 one of the things he noticed is on Shane Ross. He says there is a kind of comical shamelessness to the minister's behaviour, particularly the way that he practically stalked Katie Taylor when she arrived home in Dublin mm. Airport with her five World Championship belts in June. You forget that that's only six months ago. It sort God. of feels like something from really from the ages. Um, a new election and a new minister for sport, he says, cannot come uh, quickly enough. You're um, here, say all of us. I mean, comical shamelessness sure is a great You'd phrase. love to have him back in the Shannon, Ivana, wouldn't you, after sitting beside him uh, for so many years? No, um, I would not. <laughs> uh, although uh, I'd like to have him out of office, certainly. And I think, you know, we talked earlier about uh, um, Leo Varadkar, you know, using the style of Boris Johnson in terms of uh, electioneering through slogans. But Shane Ross is shamelessly adopting the persona of Boris Johnson the and indeed Donald Trump. This, yes, yeah, this populist buffoonery. This, mm. I'm taking on vested interests. This, I mean, I'm just thinking, just listening to Stephen, how awful it would be if you're waking up this morning, you work, you work for the FAI, you've got the AGM, the adjourned AGM taking mm. place today, and you see this appallingly insensitive tweet by the Minister for Sport? I mean, really, mm. is this any way to to behave as a government minister, mm. to be so uh, f- flippant about the livelihoods of so many people? Well, I mean, all the people, I mean, I, you know, I have a kid who work, plays with uh, soccer. The FAI is a huge community initiative across the country. It's huge amounts of people have invested enormous quantities of their time, of their time, you know, selflessly to work with kids and to work with girl, girls. Soccer is a huge thing. It's brilliant to see that. But 
then to see all this this stuff that's going on at the top of the FAI and then the Minister for Sport mm. making a big joke out of it yeah, and then playing not apologising pe- not apologising not deleting the tweet and playing it for last well, shamelessly well, to try and get re-elected What I think is actually quite interesting is that you mentioned that he's being flippant in this case and many people would argue that he is but he's also given that interview in which he makes the non-apology apology to Philip Ryan in the Sunday Independent and he mentions that when it now comes to the proposals for new nominees to uh, the High Court or to any role in the judiciary he's given the name a couple of days in advance as a member of the cabinet and he spends a couple of days vetting that person online to see whether they've got any political connections or not so he's not at all flippant when it comes to allowing prospective judges go through so at least he is paying a lot of attention in that means he is not but so this, much is, that, this well, is a this is a joke statement uh, like I mean, I mean I, like, and again this has to be called out you know he runs the name through Google I mean that is just a yeah. farcical approach to take to something so important and to suggest that him searching on the internet is as good as or a necessary way to vet political I mean like that is just that has to be called out absolutely because that is it's insulting to anyone who's involved now I have no insight into how judicial appointments are made in this country but I would like to think that it goes beyond someone sitting in front of a computer typing in the name of the appointee and, finding it and wondering what comes up I mm. mean mm. to call that as his process is just mm. Bananas. Oh, and so the Minister for Transport is spending so much time looking at the uh, the prospective judicial appointees, nonetheless. Isn't well, it? look, I've said this many times in the Shannon over the course of the judicial appointments bill, wending its slow way through the Shannon. If he was serious about reforming the judicial appointments process, he would have backed off, let the actual Minister for Justice and his officials deal with it through compromise. All of us were in favour of some form of sensible reform of judicial appointments, but to have this approach where we all knew who was really pulling the strings on the judicial appointments proce- uh, bill process. And when we were debating this, not to have an opportunity to be able to compromise and achieve a real, a really good outcome. Instead, we have this unwieldy, unworkable and cumbersome bill, which is now finished in the Shannon, mm. but is going back, go back to the, the Dáil and is again, yeah. yes, and will be amended extensively, mm. we believe, in the Dáil, because it's really just become such an unwieldy process. It's no way it's, to make sensible laws. So again, I think there's a lot of posture. never going this. to happen. It is the last show of the decade. So we wanted to spend a little bit of time with reflections on exactly how we think the decade has gone some of the key themes of the decade and anything that stands out from all the reviews that are in today's papers or indeed anything that you've read over the last week or two in the papers or online um, there's been so many different changes in, in politics and societal shifts in, in technology in fact Stephen we'll start with yourself in terms of the developments in technology like people would barely even recognise the technological state of the planet at the start of the decade there wasn't even such a thing as an iPad uh, for example what, what stands out for you as being what we'll take away from this decade when it comes to technology yeah it's interesting because the Sunday Times have kind of a montage on their front page today of kind of uh, of moments from um, from the last decade and technology kind of plays a fairly central role in it because you're right the iPad didn't exist but if you think about it the word tablet had a very different meaning in uh, in, the, in, in the last decade we now use the word tablet in, in a very very different way um, and also um, you know a video on YouTube that gained over a billion views. Um, features on the front of uh, mm. the review as well this Gangnam Style video which uh, uh, you know just shows the power of a network that essentially you know didn't exist certainly to the levels it does today um, a decade ago so we've seen this entire shift I think from 
um, traditional broadcast networks. I think the biggest missed opportunity of the last decade uh, when it comes to technology is that social media should give us a platform for conversation. It should be this kind of way for two-way dialogue. Mm. And unfortunately, an awful lot of those with influence, be it political, social, cultural, sporting, etc., see it as just another broadcast network. They see it as another way to actually just push out a message. Um, and my hope, I guess, for the next decade is that the true potential of social networks and um, there's an excellent op-ed in the New York Times about this uh, yesterday as well we're taking a look at online essentially points back at some of those major political moments in the US over the last decade the Me Too movement um, mm. you know giving mm. a voice giving a greater voice to the African American community and essentially the, the role yeah. Twitter has played yeah, you, it, in, it's easy in order to, to overlook how it has democratised things we now just mm. see it as being this source for misinformation but we, we forget do, that it's, it's only potent to that medium because of how powerful it was to begin with absolutely misinformation and hate so you know, these are the kind of the, the easy stereotypes that Twitter in particular falls into but you're absolutely right those traditional barriers those gatekeepers to um, the coverage that uh, mainstream media gives to to, to news mm. um, th- they're being removed to an extent now there is still such an important role for mainstream media in terms of fact checking uh, and, and a variety of other things that need to happen for good quality journalism but in tandem with that giving individuals who maybe don't have the kind of access to that kind of outlet is something that I really hope over the next decade we see social media continue to kind of uh, evolve into. Just as a by the by an observation around technology you mentioned the video for Gangnam Style which I think was one of the first to pass a billion views I've just checked it right now it is 3.483 billion views uh, the song is 4 minutes and 12 long so if you do some back of the envelope sums the amount of time that humanity has spent watching Gangnam Style on YouTube in the last 7 years is the equivalent of 25,627 years watching yeah, Side doing that that's dance scary. which is a productive use of the decade um, Shona we mentioned uh, the relationships between mm. Ireland and the EU and Ireland and uh, Great Britain first of all I mean in terms of the, the overall shape of European politics what would be your, your thoughts of the decade oh um, well obviously I mean the first time ever a country has decided to leave the EU. Then there was obviously um, Greece, uh, which at one point was thought to maybe leave the euro. But uh, Greece is one of those countries now who's been at the forefront of the refugee crisis. I mean, the refugee crisis evolved because of, you know, the um, first of all, the Arab Spring, the Syrian war, Russian interference, uh, you know, the creation of refugees. And that's going to be a huge problem and a huge uh, issue for the European Union over the next decade, for all of us over the next decade. Um, it's been sort of uh, overshadowed by Brexit mm. um, and the priorities haven't been there for the EU, but it's hugely problematic. And, and actually, a, a, you know, a, a sort of a byproduct of Putin's war in Syria was the fact that all these refugees are created and has created so much there, therefore instability in Europe because there's no consensus on how to deal with it. And Europe has taken the burden itself mm. on how to deal with refugees and basically live up to its um, international obligations under refugee so law. Th- there will but, be a time after Brexit where the trade deals are, are done or not done and Britain's relationship with the EU is no longer a major talking point at that point we'll still have to go back and address the outcome of the refugee crisis well, and all I mean, that because those, those problems anyway. are still lingering underneath well, they're li- lingering but also the EU's policy um, with, with Turkey to ensure that very few Syrians, for example, get over to the European Union. What is the fate of those people? A lot of them are locked up in refugee camps. Um, the others that are trying to come from Africa have been sent back to, um, uh, you know, um, regimes in Libya where they've been tortured, enslaved, mm. raped. So actually, this is all going to come to the fore over the next five, ten years. I Meaning we also remember in 2014, we had the re-emergence of ISIS, a group that went underground after the Iraq war. Mm. Um 
and we'll probably see that again but what happens to those those people who are stuck in these refugee camps now do they become radicalised you know it's it's really there's so much more to to, to, to for this story to run it's going to be hugely problematic um, and then the EU will be at the forefront of that also though you have um, countries like Hungary and Poland recalcitrant countries who are who have decided that they don't want to abide by EU principles or the rule of law when it comes to the European Union. They've already been being dealt with the European Court of Justice at the moment. But again, it's the it's the mentality in those countries, the populations that have been, to, you know, sort of given terrible propaganda by the likes of Viktor Orban and mm. the Peace Party in Poland. Will those two countries want to leave the European Union? Do they see that the EU is too sort of globalist and, as they say it in Poland, the um, LGBT ideology is what they call, yeah. basically, mm. is their terminology for globalisation which is well we want to have our own Polish you know traditional Catholic values and move away from what's being imposed on us by Europe so there's a lot to happen um, can the EU stand up to it all or um, well who knows mm. I mean I don't tune see in it. next week to find yeah. out yeah. <laughs> I don't see it as a, I don't see the EU breaking up over it but I think that like, I think that's too it, much it definitely it feels like a crossroads moment it's though a, it's certainly right, a crossroads yeah. moment but then you see other, you know you see the people in, you know many, many Hungarians well particularly in Budapest I guess and also in parts of Poland who are rising up against those governments and saying well hold on a minute mm. you're actually threatening our membership of the European Union which has delivered so much for us and by the way made these 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 member states they take all the structural funds and all the money that's, you know, Oh, they take them. all the goodies. They take yeah. all the goodies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So are they therefore willing to cross the line and, and have their EU membership um, severed in some way? Uh, Ivana, it's been a decade of a lot of uh, political instability. There's been a lot of, I suppose, environmental uh, instability, uh, but there's been a decade of massive social reform here at home. What will be your lingering memories of the 10 years just ending? Mm. Well, just listening to Shona, I mean, it's covered as a multitude when you think of the enormous change that's happened in that in the decade and certainly um, the rise of far-right populism across European countries, but not just in Europe, of course. If you look at Brazil and you look at Mm. the US and elsewhere uh, and India, uh, one sees that this is a a very worrying political phenomenon that's Mm. uh, arisen over the decade, in some way fuelled or certainly helped by what we've talked about the democratisation of social media but then also the manipulation of me- social media the use of uh, um, you know the, u- the use of, of fake news uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, electioneering and so on so that's that, going to be the new normal though isn't it negative. that level of misinformation you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube well, there will always I be think, malicious actors well I would hope I would be opt- I'm naturally an optimist and I think that we we have seen some positive signs of that we've seen a move towards kinder discourse certainly you know Twitter which I'm as, as most politicians are are mm. you know I use Twitter a lot but I think but you see kinder u- uses of, of social media through for example Instagram which is a much nicer mm. much less coarse much just kinder generally I think and I think also we've seen you know political decision making step in so for example political pressure on Facebook in our own 2018 referendum which for me of course was a hugely defining political moment in Ireland from the last decade was when we voted finally to repeal the Eighth Amendment and enable women to have access to, um, to abortion services mm. here so in that campaign, we were able to ensure that uh, there wasn't uh, the use of political advertising on social media, mm. which we were mm. concerned would be a real factor in, in manipulating uh, voting. So I think, you know, there's some good positive signs about how we can manage social media um, discourse better. Um, the Arab Spring, which was such a positive example, like the, the time. Me Too movement, yeah. has, has been, uh, so I mean, as Shona said, it's been appalling to see how, the, for example, I mean, just this week, the bombing uh, by uh, Assad of, of, 
of civilians in Idlib has been horrific to see. So there's some very worrying signs as we enter the next mm. decade. But the EU has been a force for positivity, as social media has, for example, on climate change, where we see the EU really taking a lead internationally on trying to move towards mm. carbon neutrality. I think by 2050, we're saying so. Okay. You know, these are positive signs. And let's be positive as we yeah, move well, into on, the next decade. On that slightly cheerier note than, than might have expected, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Thanks to all of you for coming in, particularly in this kind of fallow period of Twixtus, where, as we've noted, it's very difficult to determine exactly what day of the week it actually is. So appreciate uh, all of your company this morning. Senator Ivana Batchik, Stephen O'Leary from Alitico and Shona Murray from Euronews. Happy Twixtus uh, to you all.